Hello, everyone. Welcome back to 2020. And we're going into the second year of Cake and Kombucha, which is pretty amazing. Um, thank you all for your donations and allowing me to keep this going. Just kidding. You haven't donated anything. And I do this um, for free, actually going to deficit. But hopefully that will change very, very soon. Um, wow. We've already started the year off with a bang. And I wish I meant that more, um, you know, like as more of, wait, do I want it more of a pun or less of a pun? Yeah, no, no. I wish it was less of a pun. It's a pun because we're actually um, exploding things and assassinating people. And that is not an ideal start. But you know what else has been great? Things that are not uh, possibly going to portend the end of America. So this show is going to feature this week a lot of other news items too. It was a news heavy week in my opinion. Well, pop culture, like a lot of fun things happen there. And um, yeah, I just want to remind new listeners of that little disclaimer that I used to give at the beginning, which is that I am not a expert on the Middle East. That's my disclaimer for this week. I'm going to talk about what is probably on all of our minds and probably freaking us out. I'm going to give you a mix of some different news sources that I've got my ear to or eyes to and just my general gut feeling. But we're not going to dwell on that for long because, again, what's going on? But let's, let's just get right into it. Okay, so Trump has assassinated General Soleimani of Iran, and I'm going to guess that you didn't know who he was until Thursday either. General Qasim Soleimani is the leader, well, sorry, he was the leader of Iran's elite Quds force. Um, it's basically, this has been explained in several places, the equivalent of someone assassinating, what's the guy that looks like a potato? There's a, there's a, there's a lot in our government. Um, Secretary of State Pompeo, or like the general of defense. And I say assassinate because this was an assassination because we're not in active war. There, it was an airstrike that dropped a drone on his car, a vehicle as he was leaving the airport. So of now Iran is warning, threatening extreme retaliation. Um, the news in Iran is encouraging Americans to leave. Actually, sorry, I'm, I said that wrong. Iran state TV has since reported that the United States has urged Americans to leave immediately. So if you're in Iran and you're American, you got to get out. Now, what does it mean for the state, for the country, for our country to just tell Americans there, hey, if you happen to be doing anything, just leave without preparing for that retaliation? Do you know what I mean? And so then Trump is saying that if Iran takes any actions against Americans, then there will be a massive chance that the U.S. will retaliate. However, is it really retaliation if we killed their person first? Now, this guy, let me read you what he's been up to in the region. He was the leader of their armed forces. He it was, you know, commander. He, oh, I, sh I want to note that he was also killed with several other officials from Iraqi militias who were backed by Tehran. Um, but General Soleimani was, according to the New York Times, the architect of nearly every significant operation by Iranian intelligence and military forces over the past two decades. This person is saying his death was a staggering blow for Iran at a time of sweeping geopolitical conflict. 
I mean, how do we assess how staggering it is? I think it's it's definitely probably shocking that America dropped a drone on your the top of your army's head. Like that would be that would be shocking. However, <clears throat> he's not, you know, he's not like a, you know, Pol Pot or Hitler. He didn't start a movement on his own. And by that I mean he will be replaced. He, I mean, it's the army. The army is organized. There's going to be someone who's next in line and younger who will terrorize us for that much longer. So I, when I first heard it, I just kind of thought, why, we, why would we kill this general? Because now they're going to implant another general who will have to take revenge on that last general and have, you know, come down on us with a fire of a thousand suns and be that much more motivated. And Ayatollah Khamenei is saying something similar. The, the country's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, about Soleimani, his departure to God does not end his path or his mission, but a forceful revenge awaits the criminals who have his blood and the blood of the other martyrs last night on their hands. I'm just confused and I'm, I'm ready to be dragged, drag me, but are we at war with them? And even when you are at war, can you drop drones on people like who are not in combat? Is that the rules? I didn't know. But I also just, it seems like it came from nowhere. It's just, they always want you to do a pivot, I feel like. And we're supposed to go with whatever anyone says we need to do to intervene in a region where people have been fighting for thousands of thousands of years. These are very old countries that we are fucking with. Very old conflicts. Lots of issues, like I said, I'm not an expert on. I, would, I really actually would love to have an expert um, on the Middle East, someone who studied these issues on the show. I mean, how are you going to encapsulate, again, like a thousand years to now? So I'm, I'm not saying that like flippantly, but I think that would be great. But it just seems like we're supposed to pivot with whatever, whatever they do. Iraq, Iran, people can't point it out on a map. I guarantee you they don't know the difference. I guarantee you some people don't know Iranians are also Persians. They don't know they know any Iranians or watch them on Bravo. Like America doesn't know what the fuck is up. We're literally just supposed to think, oh, it's the Middle East. It's all bad. But me, who's got really deep into the podcast that was about ISIS that was released by NPR and the New York Times. No, I think it was the New York Times. I'm just like, I thought that's our, I thought that was our main focus and our main threat. And if this person is not that, then what's going on? I just didn't know this is where we were. And you know who else didn't know? Congress. So the president did not notify any of the Democrats in Congress. And shadily, I literally just saw a ticker tape on the news right before I sat down to record a couple hours ago today which is Saturday, Saturday the 4th, that the Democrats have officially just been notified of what took place. <sighs> I mean, this person was obviously an enemy of the United States, but like apparently America has just assassinated the second most powerful person in Iran without any congressional authorization and set off a potential massive war. I mean, so people are calling this a foolish escalation. Um, let me see what other info. And Donald Trump, again, he's negating everything he says. He wants to pull out. He wants to not have endless wars. These are the things he's guaranteeing his constituents. 
And he does these things that are completely at odds with that. And his erratic decision-making and flaky behavior is making us look weak and confused in front of the whole world. And I guarantee you that they're going to see this as an opening. I don't feel safe as a New Yorker anymore. I am pissed. I'm really pissed. I don't understand this. I need someone to make me understand the immediacy of this. (sighs) I think that's all I have to say that's educational. I don't really want to just spend your time with my speculations. So obviously we'll find more and more about this in the days to come. And I'm sure I'll get to read a whole biography of this man and all the bad things he's done. I don't think it's going to convince me that we were ready to start a war right now. So I just remain confused. I is confusion. I can share with you, as I would like to, something that arrived in the mail in still North Carolina. And there is a letter from the Honorable Mike Pence. Is I thought Honorable was for judges. So I'm going to read this to you, and you'll see that it ties into the, the discussion, the previous discussion. Dear patriotic American, will you help? President Trump has asked me to write to you and other patriotic citizens who support the work we are doing in Washington to make America great again. I assume that work involves inspiring lots of hate crimes. For over two years, President Trump and I have proudly worked as hard as we know how to... That's not really well written. As hard as we know how, with no comma, or I mean, wait, okay, let me just start again. For over two years, President Trump and I have proudly worked as hard as we know how to restore jobs and opportunities for the American people while defending our God-given rights and liberties. And we're proud of the results. Despite vicious nonstop opposition from the Democrats and their media cheerleaders, we've got a roaring economy, our military is stronger, Our communities are safer, and we've put more than 100 pro-Constitution conservative judges on our federal courts. But as I write you this letter, all that progress is threatened by the extreme, full-blown socialists who have taken control of the Democrat Party. Under Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats are using all of their power to harass President Trump and impose socialism on the American people. So harass President Trump and impose socialism on the American people is underlined. Um, The best way to stop the Pelosi socialists is to get them out of office, to defeat them at the ballot box. That's why I'm inviting you to join the National Republican Congressional Committee, blah, blah, blah. Let's see what other bullshit is here. Wow, there's a lot. Okay. Damn. Your prompt, generous reply is important because as I write to you today, House Democrats, over please, it literally says over please, are plotting new abusive investigations and phony scandals that their media friends will obsess over 24-7 with no point other than to try and undermine President Trump's authority and weaken support for our administration. You saw plenty of this already during the past two years when the radical left pushed out one crazy conspiracy theory after another. Despite the fact that the Mueller investigation proved no collusion, which it, it didn't, House Democrats, it, like no is, is, is capitalized, guys. House Democrats cannot accept the truth. They're just going to attack, attack, attack? Wow, we really just repeat words three times in a letter from the Vice President of the United States. We are 
It's it's a Dick and Jane book. Okay. They're just going to attack, 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 and their accusations will be based on nothing but lies, lies, and more lies. Oh, fuck. Y'all, I didn't even turn the letter over. I was just going to read you the front. I didn't know it continued with this wahala. The Democrats' conduct does a disservice to the American people. It does nothing to help our country become stronger, but it does get liberal campaign donors all riled up. This is underlined. You know, as well as I do, that there is an angry nationwide base of left-wing activists who are motivated by hatred. Hatred is emboldened and italicized of our good president. These people have been pouring money into Democrat campaigns month after month, and along with liberal fat cat donors in Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Manhattan, and beyond, who are you calling a fat? They are donating huge funds to protect Speaker Pelosi's hard left majority. Blah, blah, blah. I'm anxious to hear back from you. Your gift will be used to push back against the socialist left. And it's capitalized, guys, as if socialist isn't an actual fucking movement, which these people are not. I'm dead. Oh, let's see. Okay, we're, they name... You know you that bitch when you call this conversation. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is named in this. Let's see. Blah, blah, blah. Thanks to help from Republicans in Congress and thanks to the support our administration is receiving from you. Our country is getting stronger and our future has never been brighter. Page three, y'all. That's just still going. Of course, the Democrats don't see it that way. They see tax cuts as money being taken away from the government where it belongs. Huh? Wait. They see tax cuts as money being taken away from the government where it belongs. Does that mean it belongs in the government? Because I thought Republicans were not about big government. They see the Constitution as something to circumvent, not something to uphold. Um, that's a fucking lie because impeachment is in the Constitution. They see border security as immoral, Nancy Pelosi's word for it. <sighs> and they are pushing their hard left socialist policies more aggressively and more openly. They used to hide their support for socialism than ever before in my career. Led by extremists like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Rep. Elon Omar of Minnesota, these parentheses, new Democrats, want to use the government power to impose harsh changes on America, including huge tax hikes, pushing, punishing environmental regulations, and programs like the Green New Deal, which will put the entire economy under government control and give massive new welfare entitlements to people who are unwilling to work. Oh my God, I thought I was just going to talk to you about the lies and like misconstruing what the word socialism means on purpose. I did not know that there was going to be dog whistle racism in, I'm actually like really disturbed right now. Massive new welfare entitlements to people who are unwilling to work, which is in quotation marks, open borders, Amnesty for illegal aliens <clears throat> and abolition of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency and watering down the Second Amendment with gun bans and national registries of Americans who choose to own firearms. Again, why should your gun be a secret? I like it is it's actually controversial to have a registry of people who want to own firearms. I know people pushed against like more screening. So they don't want it to be harder, but if you don't want there to be a registry, are you saying that you, it should be a secret? Like what do people want to do with guns? If their vision is implemented, 
will be disastrous for our country and the next generation. So please join the NRCC today and help us take back the house. Oh my God, he's still fucking going. <sighs> Let's see. Socialist, 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 socialist. Socialist, socialist, socialist. So what is the NRCC? It's the campaign arm for all House Republicans. Okay, so... <sighs> Wow, that was more disturbing than I thought it was going to be. Actually, need a minute. I didn't. I didn't take a minute on your behalf. I just um, paused. But on this topic of other things, this I guess is just a conservative, conservative corner. A tragedy happened this weekend, or actually a New Year's Day, a nine-year-old girl and her father were mistakenly killed by fellow deer hunters. Um, cute nine-year-old girl and her father were moving deer, which is apparently when you you move them to a spot set up for hunting. And one of the f- hunters shot the father and the daughter. And they died. So let's read the shock and awe. Um, <clears throat> it shouldn't have happened, says a friend of the family. How some simple hunting trip could turn into a tragedy is beyond me. Is it really beyond you? Um, yeah. I don't know what to tell you because they weren't dressed as deer. They weren't in a deer costume. They were near deer. So if hunters can't identify other human beings like them, other bipedal creatures that are walking around with clothes on what is that like houseway it's either two things so this is why like we just shouldn't have guns right two things either it's really easy to mix up people and deer in which case hunting isn't safe and we would need to do something where you know, if say we need to call the deer population ever, because are they, which, and there are some animals that destroy the ecosystem because they're overpopulated and some people do have to kill them, but then it would be like, you know, there's only the, the few people doing it are registered and they have hazmat, you know, neon suits on and they're only go out one at a time. So there would never be any accidents, something like that. It sounds like something another country that cares about its citizens would do. Okay, so that's if it's really hard to distinguish people from deer, right? And the other option is that it's really easy to distinguish people from deer and that the fault was an incompetent hunter, which leads us right back to the same solution. It's not safe for people to hunt if some people can't tell people from deer. So that's my simple argument for why we shouldn't have guns. Um, it's just like, where does the bar have to be? Like how many people are you willing to let die? I feel like gun lobbyists needs to make up a number. There was a church this weekend that also had a shooter come in and the shooter was taken down by the armed forces of the church, armed guards of the church. So only one person died who was one of those armed guards like, which is part of the church. It wasn't like paid guards. Like the church has a security squad that carries guns and people are trying to turn that into see, well, that's what happens when you have good guys with guns. They take down the shooter as if the person that died 
taking down the shooter does not matter. Why are you willing? I think this example with the father and daughter is powerful because it is guns and like the hobby aspect. Why are you willing to have so many people die so that you can have a hobby? Do you know how many hobbies I have? More than fucking one. I don't get it. I'm so sick of coddling people and their bullshit while other people are dying. The things you like to do make other people die. Let's stop doing it. But, you know, that would be too much like simple. So that's that's it. I don't know if I have more politics today, but I'm definitely going to give you all a break and we'll get into something lighter. Midnight, not a sound from the pavement As the moon blows to her memory She is smiling alone in the lamplight The withered leaves collect at my feet and the wind I've been catching up on a lot of reality TV this week, and it has not disappointed me at all. Um, let's start with Real Housewives of Atlanta. So last week, Cynthia Bailey got engaged to her boo, Mike Hill, who's the first... Well, Papa Smurf was like... No, he looks too much like Papa Smurf. He looked like Uncle Ben's. I can't, um, he, was, he was not an unattractive man. But he didn't have that youthful energy I feel like Cynthia needed. She is around the same age as her new fiance, Mike Hill, who's a sports commentator. It was really touching, you guys. I have to say that I don't care what people want to say about representation. I love watching Black women be adored and cherished and proposed to at 50, having three options of husbands, get, you know, getting married for the third time. It's great. Let me know that my 50s are going to be lit, okay? No matter what happens. Let me know that I'll never go out of style. I'll never stop being hot. I live. I live. I live for these women. Even in the white ones in New York, it's not even in New York, New York housewives. I just love watching them, you know, be messy and like your life isn't over. It's still fun, hot, whatever. Um, on Real Housewives of Orange County or of Beverly, wait, no, of Orange County. Um, What's her name? Damn, I, why don't some of these people only remember their names while I'm watching? Oh, Shannon. Shannon has a new boyfriend who's a divorcee who has a bunch of kids and the, they're doing the cute blended family thing. So I love watching the second, you know, the new beginning for these women. But anyway, Cynthia got engaged. It was really touching. Mike has two adorable, beautiful daughters. And he, you know, first of all, he went to get her ring and he referred to her daughter as... Her daughter, who's come out as bisexual this year, which was a fun storyline. They went to Pride together. He referred to her daughter as, he was like, these are my daughters to all of them. And then they had, when at the surprise engagement, what happened at the opening of Cynthia's Bailey Wine Cellar in the Bailey Room, which is a wine cellar and, and uh, event space. <clears throat> he surprised her with the ring, but then the daughters came out and they had this little like broken heart glass plaque that they put together and it had their names on it. Like, together we make a family. I was, I cried. I'm not going to lie. Why would I lie? I cried. Um, but the most trifling thing that happened on the show is that Candy, Candy Burris texted Kenya, come on, hurry up to the event, you know, stopping on CP time. I think Mike's going to propose because Mike had winked at her in the hiss, like, don't leave. I got something going on. Don't leave. And obviously, you know, we know what that is. 
So she, Candy texts Kenya, hey, I, I think Mike's going to propose. Then Kenya comes in and tells Cynthia, oh my gosh, I just have a feeling he's going to propose. Why? Why? It's worth it to watch Candy's facial expressions as she tries to reason through why the fuck someone would do something like that. Like, why? Who ruins surprises? Even if you don't like the person, that's just a... I feel like surprises are just this thing that you just... You don't go there. Who does that? And how dare you say, I have a feeling. And then later, when it was time to confront it and talk about it, this bitch said, you know, I'm psychic. I have my premonitions. And she didn't even acknowledge that Candy texted it to her. I'm dead. How can you have a premonition? And someone's like, hurry up. Hurry up. This is happening. I had a feeling it would happen. I'm dead. So that was hilarious. Um, Real Housewives of New Jersey. I've been just started watching again randomly down here. I haven't watched it in years. So those of you who like watch Bravo at all probably remember back when the original franchise was like New York, New Jersey. No, I mean, the, sorry. The original franchise was OC and then New York, New Jersey. <laughs> so... The the chair the table flip from Teresa Judice, however you say her name, is one of the most famous moments in reality TV history. Prostitution, whoa! and that was at Daniel Staub. Daniel Staub was this woman with a lot of weird stuff going on, like tabloids about her divorcing and getting married to men who have shady businesses. I you know I can't really pinpoint anything about her that's real or not, and it, I don't really care. She made for good television. But for some reason, she really pissed Teresa off, which I didn't know because Danielle was almost like not to be taken seriously ever. If there was ever an original person that was on there for clout and just being messy for clout, it was her. So this really got under Teresa's skin. I don't know why. And when Teresa loses her temper, her English kind of goes away. So that's how you got to her veins turning red and her hulking out, lifting an entire table, a heavy table, like a big table for a big Italian family that had place settings on it and screaming, prostitution whore! That's, that's prostitution whore um, in a not New Jersey accent. And now I turn on to see Daniel Staub and Teresa are friends and Teresa's about to fight other people on Danielle's behalf. And she told Danielle like, oh, you know, if things don't work out with your divorce, you know, you can always come stay with me. What the fuck? I was dead. I guess the, sh- the show started like 12 years ago at this point. So... Should I be surprised that someone you flipped a table over is like your bestie now? I guess 12 years can change things, but the way it's just such a fascinating social experiment how people literally form friendships on these shows because they know they have to work together. They acknowledge it at this point. The group, the girls, we got to get along as a group. It's like you are in a group because you're paid to be in a group and you're on a TV show. You obviously don't have to get along because that's what we're watching for. But you are a cast. And like it's fascinating because they acknowledge their cast. So I just find it very interesting to see, yeah, how do, how do things change when you spend 12 years around someone that you need to? And Danielle wasn't on it the whole time. But how does that change your view? And do you just decide, well, this person's still here. The new person they brought annoyed me more. So I'm going to focus on this person that I used to hate. They look a lot better in comparison. I'm like, how did that happen? But anyway, it's messy as hell. Get into it. Um, 
that that woman with the blonde overprocessed hair, she don't like Danielle Staub. They got in a fight. She poured a cup of water on Danielle. Then Danielle went, grabs an expensive purse, this yours, takes out the woman's cell phone and wallet and sits them in a glass of water. <clears throat> I've never seen anything pettier. And I'm not going to say she's wrong for it. I don't think there are rules when you pour water on someone's head. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I don't recall any guidelines about that. So yeah, I think it's just a uh, buyer beware when you pour water on someone's head. And then it's to be continued for next week. Then she reached out and said, look at your white hair. Cause her hair is like platinum to the point it's white. Reached out, grabbed her by the pigtails and yanked. So what you see for next week is just her being dragged around um, by her hair. And um, yeah, that's it. I've also been catching up on Dallas. Um, Cameron has called Brandy white trash again. There's really interesting class things going on in Dallas because you have the debutante girls. Then you have the girls that are like, I grew up in a trailer. Everyone's judging me. And then there's apparently some rich part of town that you have to live in. And if you're not in the zip code, they literally don't want to be bothered with you. So um, that was interesting. But I'm really trying to get to the end because a fin- uh, um, not a finale, a reunion came on. And I love a reunion. Look, I watch a reunion of a show I didn't watch. I watched the Ready to Love reunion. It was very lit. Get into Ready to Love on OWN. It's black men and women in their 40s, like finding love again and linking up with each other. It's like The Bachelor, but both men and women can get kicked off by each other. That reunion told me everything I need to know. I'll be watching next season. Um, okay, that's the reality TV report for now. I will, I'll do 90 Day Fiance is like getting towards this end of the season. So I'm just going to do, I'll do like a little recap for next week since it's coming on tomorrow. Every street lamp seems to beat a fatalistic warning. Someone mutters and the street lamp gutters. So continuing with the reality themes, um, the Surviving R. Kelly documentary has a part two. Um, not to be mistaken with how the, the, the documentary was divided up into different parts. There's a whole new series. And it's really interesting because it's like the success of the last series and and how it obviated that men were not speaking up. I believe no men except for John Legend, sexiest teddy bear in the world, did not show up. I mean, actual teddy bear. I don't mean like he's big. I'm being sarcastic because I don't think he's sexy. I think he looks like a teddy bear, but he's a good guy. He was the only one in the other documentary. This one, the men showed up, and by the men, I mean Dame Dash, most significantly for me. Let me tell you guys... This is so powerful and so, so illuminating and so raw. And for someone that can't read as much as we joke about his illiteracy, R. Kelly is brilliant at emotional manipulation to a degree that is only like something you would see in a movie, a true sociopath. One of the most... One of the most powerful segments for me, and I need to, I put out an apology to this woman because I dragged her before, I think, 
his hairdresser, his hairdresser was known for defending him and saying like, well, he didn't do any of that to me, blah, blah, blah. And I think I made fun of her in a former podcast because I, you know, I have this thing about people being like, well, I didn't see that. He wasn't there. For, this person was nice to me. It's like, were you there for Hiroshima? Were you there for D-Day? Like, these things happened. This happened. You weren't there. You know, did Charles Manson kill you? Obviously, people do things to different people, and you don't have to always see it with your eyes. But if 100 people tell you someone, you know, eats is a cannibal, then you might want to be careful. However, and, and this happens a lot with sexual assault, right? Like, the person was nice to me. The person was nice to me. And it's just so important to note that people like R. Kelly thrive off, they thrive from the confusion. They thrive from the mayhem. He gave these different women intermittent reinforcement, meaning the same person that causes you pain is the same person that relieves it. It's not connected to anything you do. It's random. And the fact that you know, he knows that a lot of people are saying these things about him. And with the hairdresser, it it helped him. So let me explain how. Call her by her name, Lenita Carter. Um, I'm sorry, I had to look that up in my notes. So Lenita Carter met R. Kelly when she was 24 years old. She was very excited to be doing his hair. She plainly said, being part of you know, doing, working for a celebrity, being noticed by celebrity, being trusted by celebrity made me feel important. She came from an abusive sexual, a background of sexual abuse. She was in an abusive marriage. She felt like no one ever listened to her. She literally said, when I was doing R. Kelly's hair, my family started to let me finish sentences. It was like, oh, Lenita, what do you think? I mean, can you fucking believe? And so people call people gold diggers and whatever and want to just gloss over <clears throat> what celebrity can mean. But these people who are using their celebrity are preying on people who don't have an identity of their own. And people can can zoom in on that. These people, these evil people. So Lenita is working for him. She tells him, you know, I've heard a lot of things about you when the video of him peeing on the child comes out. I've heard things about you. I don't, you know, people tell me not to work with you. And he says, you know what? That makes me really like you. And I know I like that you're real. You came to me. You came to me that, you know, I respect that you, you have, you spoke up. And so I'm really glad you brought that up. Let me address that. That was my brother, which is a lot, which is just Later, his brother that he was blaming is on the documentary. He's pissed because if you really have to think about it, it's one thing to be a total misogynist. I wish I was more surprised by that. It's another thing to be, you will put your brother in jail for you. Like that's another level of sociopathy that I just wasn't really, I was like, oh, you don't give a fuck about anyone, like any, not your family. So anyway, um, he said it was his brother and she's, you know, so their relationship grows. She said he helped her get out of her abusive marriage. He was her support system. He was, she said he was the first person, you know, to call himself like my big brother. Like she did not have any male mentorship, any male family guidance protection. And this woman is just holding back tears the entire story. Like she's in pain, in pain. And then... One day, he takes his affection away. How? I think this was all staged. She doesn't confirm that it was, but she was. She used to come to his hair, to his studio, to do his hair, 
And this was back when he had cornrows and stuff, if you're wondering. So that's what she was doing. Um, and one of his entourage, one of the one of the producers or whatever, the guys that hang around, they they tried to make out with her. Come on, let's go to this back room. And she's like, No, I'm a mom. I have three kids. I'm not. That's not what I'm here for. So she goes home, and R. Kelly calls her, reaming her out. You you're supposed to come to me. What happened with my What happened with so and so? She was like, Oh, I mean, I didn't think it was a big deal. I just wasn't interested. And he reams her out, tells her that she has betrayed his trust. And then that's it. After that, she tried to call, you know, when, when should I come by to do her again? No answer. R. Kelly's, Robert's not here, Robert's not here, Robert's not here. And so for two months, about, he ignored her. And then suddenly he, he calls her back. Do you see? So he removes her security blanket, the trust, the friendship that they had, takes that away from her for two months, puts her in this position of weakness, and then he calls her to come back, and everything's different. As soon as, he, as, soon as she comes in, he says, okay, I want a massage. And she's like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't do massages. You know, I just do hair. He says, no, not a massage. I want a massage on my, on down there. He grabs her by her pigtails, forces himself on her, and... Um, this is really difficult to say, but ejaculates on her face. And she goes through a harrowing, harrowing process, which I can't even get into. You have to watch the documentary legally. I mean, I will say that our legal system is utter, complete shit, no sense of discretion, no common sense when it comes to dealing with things like this. When she reported what happened, they sent like 50 cars with sirens over to her house. So the whole block knows what's going on. She can hear her describing this, the assault to a female officer who was a black woman who was skeptical, which is not that surprising. And she hears it being radioed to everyone on the block. They literally just came because it was R. Kelly and they wanted to hear it. It's, it was just ridiculous. However, one of the things that stuck out to me was that this, it wasn't rape, it was sexual assault because there was no, you know, intercourse or penetration. She felt like, oh, I, nothing can happen anyway. I can't report this. And fortunately, she had a brother-in-law that told her she could. And also just that she was so hurt and she's not one of the women that was in a relationship with him. But the pain was so strong because this person built her up, gave her a sense of self and identity and took it away from her. And she almost crumbled. It was really, really powerful to me. I, I, it's just disgusting that we for 20 years have been making jokes about him and the Pied Piper and his illiteracy as if to say that, you know, because you can't read, you can't emotionally manipulate people. And some of the things, every, Every other thing I would hear, I'd be like, really? You just cover all the bases of depravity. So Damon Dash was on the the documentary. And if you don't remember, he was in a relationship with Aaliyah at the end of her life. It was very serious. And he said, you know, Aaliyah would not talk about me to me about what happened. All she said was, that's a bad man. And if you knew what anything you wouldn't be able to handle it and you wouldn't be, in, be able to be in the same room with him. Basically, she didn't want her 
boyfriend to retaliate in a way that was like fatal that would get everyone in trouble. And he was holding back tears as he said this. He said, then I had to go to therapy for that. Um, he said that Aaliyah was, was the test. She was the, and she, she didn't deserve that, but he did it in plain sight. He married a child in plain sight. And after that, anything else was possible. That was rough. And that's the first person that I've ever heard corroborate anything, not even corroborate. I've never heard anyone report something Aaliyah said herself. And it broke my heart because if you're a girl of a certain age, if you're a black girl of a certain age, Aaliyah was your idol. And I was broken the day she died. We were all destroyed. And um, I was watching with my mom and she was just like, man, I remember like, I remember when that happened because you guys were a mess. So it was really hard to hear that someone I used to idolize so much who seemed like such a pure spirit went through that and never had a resolution. And even, but her, she preferred Damon Dash said she preferred to keep it quiet. She didn't even have any very many. She said, keep that, you know, keep that man away from me, but let him live, but keep him away from me. She was just so happy to be free of it. She didn't even, you know, she had no plan. She had no plan for legal action or, or, or justice. She just wanted to be free of it. So I, I suggest you watch it. There's really excellent psychologists on the show that talk about the, the way that the narrative of, you know, being a gold digger or being a victim is shaped, the way that his legal um, team has pushed back and the ways that that plays into all of our own prejudices that we hold inside that allowed this to happen. Things that every one of us has been guilty of, you know, so... I think it's a I think it's really important work and these women are just the strongest but also like very eloquent. I mean, the way they talk about their pain is quite you really feel it. Um I I would highly suggest this. It's not going to destroy you like it's I mean, I can't say that I'm sorry. I don't know what everyone's triggers are, but it's very sad. I think I think that it's not you know, I didn't cry because people are mostly on the other side. That's what I can say. You're looking at survivors. They're healthy and they're strong. And so I, I wasn't, I didn't come away emotionally destroyed, but I came away wanting to give R. Kelly like the death penalty. Okay, it's a moment you've all been waiting for. Cats review. Um, where to begin? I mean, the biggest question is definitely why. I think that's most people's biggest question. So if you haven't been living under a rock, you have to have seen the viral, crazy reviews. As soon as I saw the reviews, I knew I had to see this. I've never seen anything get reviews as 
as bad, as consistently bad, incredulous, horrified as this. So of course I was curious. Come on. I had to see what the fuss was about. And let, um, I don't know. It depends on your background. You're not necessarily going to think you're on an acid trip if you have seen Cats before, which I have seen the, the musical when I was a kid. I fell asleep and I was a theater nerd, so I didn't really fall asleep. And when the cats started doing the Pirates of Penzance, I said, I'm out. I didn't come to Gilbert and Sullivan. I'm out. Um, that does happen in the show. So if you've seen the musical before, you're not, there are certain conceits that you will be willing to have like people in cat suits. That's a major one. I mean, if you aren't prepared to see people walking around in leotards dressed like cats, then you're going to be disturbed. It's going to be disturbing off rip. You will be confused and you'll be confused. So there's, you know, I read from review of those like, this is the worst ketamine trip. Is this the end of life? I mean, sort of, because like, it's like embarrassing for some of the performers. I, I just, so to the director's credit and not credit, like right, the directors are in charge of what they direct, right? You're in charge of deciding to do something. So of all the movie musicals you could do, Cats is a really weird choice. It's a really weird choice. And what you did with CGI was even weirder. Let's back it up though, because many of the problems with Cats, most of the problem with Cats comes with the fact that it's fucking weird anyway. T.S. Eliot, famous British poet, wrote this, like an afternoon of cats or something. It's a book of poems about cats. And back in T.S. Eliot's day, everyone was high on laudanum and ether and shit and opium. So yeah, it's weird. And that's what cats is based on. Cats is little vignettes, I guess you would call it, but even structurally there's stuff wrong with the musical. So to get granular for a second, it's about, it follows this one cat who's abandoned, who's a kitty, and just she, all these cats in the street are introducing themselves to her. And there's something called Jellicle Cats, which is not explained, but it's like, you're a Jellicle Cat. A Jellicle Cat, come one, come all. A Jellicle Cat. It's just a poem, okay? He made up the word Jellicle, and he's like, Jellicle Cats are black and white. Jellicle Cats are tall. Jellicle, I mean, he made it up. It's just, what does it mean? It's J-E-L-L-I-C-L-E. So once a year, the Jellicle Cats have a Jellicle Bowl. And the Jellicle Bowl is where... One cat is selected to ride up away in a balloon to go like to cat heaven, the far side, I think it's called, I forget, which is basically like you get another cat life, some sort of reincarnation type deal. So one large structural problem with why the movie was really boring, actually, is because I won't say really boring, like I wasn't falling asleep, but it was definitely just dragging is because... Cats is almost an opera. There's very little dialogue. And if any, I think the dialogue in the movie was definitely new. Um, and so first, you just run around their different vignettes where the cats, different types of cats have a song about themselves. So there's like the Gumby cat, which is Rebel Wilson, you know, once again, because being fat is funny. I mean, the only reason it's funny in this movie is because she is, you know, all the other cats are like, 
dancers in unitards and it's just the first time you see someone with a different cat body shape and it's cute but who doesn't love a fat cat and little tummy so but the whole joke is that I'm a Gumby cat so a Gumby cat is a cat that lies around all day in a house now then very ill-advised she keeps cockroaches in this house so the cat has like a cockroaches that are going to help her perform like for her show later, for her like song for the Jellicle Ball, she's competing. And um, she has trained a cadre of cockroaches who are miniature human dancers dressed up as cockroaches with human faces. Um, and she eats one of them. I really didn't appreciate that. But the cockroaches are bigger than the mice who are depicted as kids like they're little kids' faces in a, on a mouse, on a CGI mouse. And the scale, the proportion of the cat to the mice is, is like the cats are, the, the mice are smaller compared to the cats than mice are to humans in real life. So it was really weird. They made the, they made the mice like ants. It was, I didn't get it. So she has a song about being a Gumby cat. And then they go to these other cats. Uh, who, what are these other cats called? There's these two cats that just like mesh it up for no reason, which I thought was funny because T.S. Eliot in his high state, he did capture like, you know, cats are weird and they have like attitudes. So, you know, you're anthropomorphizing them and making up that these cats, this is a cat that likes to chill all day and doesn't, and naps all day, doesn't do anything. This is a cat that will just fuck up your shit for no reason. And you, you know, if you have something nice, they mess it up. They move it because they just like to get in some shit. And so there are these parts that are relatable, right? As someone who's been around cats, but then you're like, but then they just make up some other type of cat that you don't really find a real connection to. And then they go to the Jellicle ball where everyone does another song about themselves anyway. So it's like the whole thing is introducing is songs like introducing a type of cat. Um, there's a railway cat. Didn't find that very relatable. Didn't know cats lived in railways. There's, oh, there's two magician cats. One is Mr. Mistopheles. The other one is evil, is evil Idris Elba, who is in an awkward, he's gotten way too thin and he's so stiff. He needed a, a, a foam roller. Like he... Mm. Once he took off his clothes, yes, yeah, some of the cats were clothes, some don't. Um, once he took off his clothes and tried to do a little dancing, it was it was over for me. And he had fur the exact same color as his complexion. And remember, the people have their same faces, so that was odd. And he makes the other cats disappear. So he's like an evil Satan cat that's also a magician. Why would there be two magicians? Cats don't do magic. So do you see what I'm trying to describe? Like some things are based on reality, some aren't. So no conceit was consistent and well thought out. And again, this is stuff like back to the musical kind of. Now, as for like the concept of a movie musical, again, like the Brits do, like singing comes second to like everything else. So it no, there just wasn't like, it's like an opera. People need to be singing their face. If you're going to watch people in scenarios that don't make sense, doing things that don't really make sense for two hours, they need to be singing their fucking faces off. And that did not happen at all. And um, it really sucked because, yeah, like Andrew Lloyd Webber, if there's anything you can do right, it's write, write some catchy tunes. So there's some shit that's really catchy. But 
I just didn't, yeah, the, the vocals were not there. And so lastly, the whole CGI thing, that's what's freaking people out the most is that it's unclear to me why, I mean, okay, so the cats look, they look scary because they are, they took people in leotards, they had to wear these leotards to film, and then they animated them sort of. And so sometimes it looks like someone's head is like not connected to their body. By the way, their hands had no makeup, no fur, nothing. Their hands were just regular human hands. Don't know that decision. Some cats, oh, racist. The Asian cat was a tiger, like striped cat. And then Lay Twins was in it. And instead of just letting them be good dancers, they wore a chain and sneakers. And I was like, okay. I don't, you didn't have to do that. Like, I don't need to know which cats you think are african-american which they're not so even like what what culture what black culture are you even like referring to so anyway the guys are like french and they're i think they're originally from like some maybe guadalupe or something like that or i don't know a french colony but they're from paris so anyway that happened didn't like it peeped it um peeped it there's also a black woman cat that was giving the most sass peeped that too didn't like it um, oh yeah, the CGI. Sorry, I'm getting off track. I was just lost in being offended. So when you have the opportunity to do, make a musical into a movie, you have special effects. So whatever is magical, whatever the stage used to take care of, you do the real thing. So like Les Mis was actually, you know, they, they brought to life revolutionary France, right? Tom Hooper, the director of, of this movie, Cats, also directed Les Mis. So that these are things you consider when you're even taking on a project. So you would need to ask yourself, why am I making this into a movie? And so that's the thing that wasn't taken into consideration. What am I going to use the CGI for? The CGI, so to me, it's like you need to do it like the Lion King or something and have it real animals talking. So have, you know, all CGI cats, no, none of this human face shit and have them singing and really set it in a you know, have the proportions be right, have a real cat in a real house. And by real, I mean CGI, but something that looks like a real cat, you know, stealing things, pawing things, pawn, taking your jewelry and singing about it, you know, like something. And I'm not saying that's a solution. I'm not getting paid to do this. If you paid me, I would have thought of something for you and I would have helped you out. Like, but, but to take it and partially animate things, it's like, what is the end result you're trying to accomplish? Because they're not humans all the way and they're not cats all the way. So were you trying to make weird demonic looking beings? Because the music is not called weird de cat demons. It's called cats. Like it's like on stage, there are people playing cats. I mean, the characters are cats, right? And we know that we are the human race. So we know the humans are going to play the cats in theater because that's who plays things. Those are actors are all human. However, on movies, that doesn't need to be the case. So like when I go to the theater and I see people in cat leotards, I give up the conceit that they're a cat because they're playing a cat. When I go to the movie, why are you animating them? It was just freaky. So again, it was just like bad choices, casting. Oh, I don't think really famous accomplished people need to have their you don't need to be dressed up as a cat. It's distracting. Dame Judi Dench, the queen of the world, played, um, what was the, the oldest cat's name? 
I don't know. Jennifer Hudson brought the house down. I don't care what y'all say about her hollering. Without her, there would be nothing to hold on to in terms of musicality. So, and she really acted the fuck out of that song too. Um, So she played Grizabella, the glamour cat. Grizabella was perhaps some, something of like a, a loose cat in her day. And now I want to say like has syphilis or some reason, all the other cats are shunning her, but she, um, she sings her song memory, which is her presentation for the Jellicle ball. And then she gets to go in a balloon ride to heaven. So go Jennifer. Yeah, let me know if um, you this makes you want to see the movie or the musical. I don't know how this sounds to someone who hasn't seen it before. But mostly I was just confused at the, at the decisions and the use of resources. And, oh, let me give an honorable mention to Jason Derulo. Jason Derulo actually killed it. What is his song? A something cat. And his cat was just like a, I have big dick energy cat and... The other cats were like drunk. The girl cats were like drinking milk with him and a cat at orangey or something suggested. But he actually killed that. So his vocals held it down, but he only has one small short song. And then you got to wait a really long time to hear something you can sink your teeth into. So yeah. Oh, and the tap, the cat, the tap dance was great. And everyone else, I would say like, I need better vocals or better dancing. Like I, I didn't find that any other dancing was like so over the top that it warranted, you know, the person being like not such a strong singer. Cause you know, in real life in theater, like not all the people in the chorus can sing their faces, but they can do shit that definitely the singers like we can't do. And so, you know, we, we work together, but I feel like you just, you have so much money. You can find that person that can put their, you know, their leg at a complete 90 degree angle straight up in the air and sing that well too. Like you could have done that. And instead you had people doing so much talk, singing and chanting, and I wasn't here for it. All right, that's it. I'm done. If you have a girlfriend, a boyfriend or kitty, I will kill them all. You'll be with me. Don't answer my message. I won't have no stressage. Just hide inside your walls until you see. Every time you look into my eyes, you see it. Your life has no meaning without me in it. So what I want to say is, ooh, wait till I'm done stalking you. Oh yeah, oh yeah, baby. There's only the two of us 
Cause I push a best friend in front of a bus Every time you look into my eyes You see Okay, that interlude was inspired by the popularity of the show You. I just thought of that song, which I love, and I may have even sung on the podcast before last year, but then I realized the song is called Get You and Not You. But still, the the long motif is that you remember is, you know, whatever. You, the word you comes in a lot. So if you guys didn't watch You the first season... I recommend that you do. It was starring Penn Bagley of Gossip Girls, he of the high cheekbones, he who looks like my ex-boyfriend, um, not with the murder part, but with the creepy part too. So I was heavily reminded and cautioned to never move backwards. And um, yeah, that uh, it was terrifying. It was hilarious because you it was camp. You didn't know what was serious and what wasn't, but it was... Just, you couldn't stop watching, and it was that lovely blend of Lifetime. I watched a fire Lifetime movie this week, too, called The Mistress Hunter. Y'all, don't sleep on Lifetime, okay? I know that those of you who really, really know, know know what it is, but don't sleep on Lifetime movies. They be turning on some entertaining shit, okay? Anyway, You is a series about this guy who falls in love with this really bland girl, and he tries to be the perfect boyfriend, but ends up like murdering everyone and her because he's crazy and he wants to own her. So, but like, he doesn't recognize it. Everything I'm saying now is just to like justify why someone would be attracted to him, which I don't know. So let me just get into it. Pem Bagley is a hilarious person. He doesn't like fame. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. Like I'm kind of low key irritated by famous actors that don't like fame. But I understand, I think his main issue was with people just being stupid. I think he doesn't like people because people became in love with his character. They fell in love with his character and girls were tweeting all kinds of things like kidnap me to which he was like, no, thanks. Um, He was pissed that bitches were in love with a serial killer. He was like, no, but I'm a murderer. I don't understand like why you would do that. Like literally you got to look up these tweets. There's tweets. Someone's like, what is it about Joe? I just can't. Joe is the character's name. What is it about Joe? I just can't figure it out. And Penn is like, um, he's a serial killer. Like just cunty. Like he's very, I think I like him because he's extremely cunty straight man. Um, he's, he just bitched these people out, but he's still infuriated. Season two has come out. The thirst tweets abound. And it's not that girls are like Penn Bagley is so fine. You know, Pam Bagley is pretty. They're they're talking about the character. I don't care. I still love Joe. And so, I mean, I know that, unfortunately, because women are murdered often in, like, domestic situations and low-key, there is an extent to which our lives don't matter. I mean, look at men who are family annihilators. Um, they're, men do, well, women do that too sometimes. But there's a thing of, or just, you know, if you watch... Um, Dateline or 48 hour mystery or, um, HLN, 
you watch these channels and you see that people just kill their spouses after, because instead of getting divorced, I'm going to kill you. It's financial, but it's also something about ownership. So, or look at honor killings in other countries. That is to say that there's something very, dis- an undercurrent current that's very disturbing about how we, um, don't want to include me. I'm not going to include me, but like a lot of people aren't that disturbed by seeing, by the idea that a man would kill for love or look at one of the most famous operas of all time, um, Carmen. He strangled her because he was jealous of her and then he cries over her body. That's the end of that opera. And that is supposed to be relatable and a tragedy, but it's supposed to be like, but literally when I grew up, I've said literally a lot and I apologize. When I grew up studying music and stuff, this opera was taught as if the tragedy is that Carmen is a willful, it was because she flirted with Escamillo. You, you were taught that she, she flirts with Escamillo, who's the matador, in front of Don Jose, her old lover, who's the soldier in the army. She flirted and she didn't choose him. She, she heard his feelings, flirted with another guy in front of her, in front of him. So he kills her. But when you're taught, like when you read a synopsis of this, you're actually taught it that that's, that's why that happened. So that's, imagine I'm like 10 and that is my first introduction to domestic violence, which I know that, I mean, that is privileged. I didn't experience any in my home, but what I mean is like, this is how you're hearing about men killing women and that's how it's taught to you. You were taught that Carmen is a harlot and she messes around and she has a flirty song like Habanera where she's like, like love is a as a bird flying free and she sings about you know how yeah maybe i'll talk to you maybe i won't maybe i like you today maybe i won't tomorrow that's her prerogative she's singing how i'm free i can't be constrained i'm a free bitch and you know she's a gypsy and you know call it racist so many issues but the point of the opera is that she was too flirty and she messed with a guy's heart. So he killed her. So I say all that to say that I think that young girls do, they embrace this idea of like struggle love. And if he's not crazy jealous and he doesn't really love me. And that's why Penn Bagley is getting these tweets that he finds deeply abhorrent. So he was talking to uh, Gina Rodriguez, which Gina at this point can't do anything right. I'm not going to say that she can because she can't. I'm not going to say that people aren't biased against her at this point because they are. But she has a long track record of like weird things. So I didn't watch the whole interview. I'm not sure if she was just maybe act fangirling over his character too. But he was extremely bitchy to her in this viral clip that everyone's retweeting. Um, he, she said, I love Gossip Girls. And he said, it, it's Gossip Girl. Which, wow. He leaned forward out of his chair to tell her that. And I, it was a moment. You have to see it. But there was an even better moment of that interview, which should have gone more viral than this little shady moment. I've only, it's mostly one of those things that's running through Twitter, but I don't even think that many outlets picked up, which is weird. Um, oh no, that's live. Variety tweeted it, but they just tweeted it. They didn't write about it. So... He said, and this was in response to a question about how he felt about all the women standing his character. 
He said, I think the, li- the log line on Lifetime is how far are you willing to go for love? But I was always like, no, that's not what that is. To me, it's how far are we willing to go to forgive an evil white man? I was just like, okay, self-awareness for the win. It's, it's, really, it's really deep for him to just be aware that it's fucked up, you know? Because I'm sure he knows he's attractive. I, I think he knows he's cute. I think a lot of people still are surprised by how, when they get famous, but how intensely people react to them. It just can be weird because where before do you get that much, you know, approval on a grand scale? And, you know, he's 5'9". No shade. I just, I don't know if he grew up, you know, being worshipped by women. Um, Lots of people have awkward phases. But I thought it was really interesting that he brought the conversation to, you know, race and privilege and, and didn't let, the narrative go that Joe is a sweet guy. Cause Joe, yeah. I mean, what the show is, you know, it's like, do we want a boyfriend that focuses on you? That's obsessed with you. That only, you know, that remember every, you know, be your biggest fan, bring you flowers every day, all these things. But the only trade off is that if you ever leave him, he'll kill you. Like if you ever want something different, he'll kill you. Like it's, it's false promise, false choice girls. We don't have to, decide that the only nice man is one who completely controls us that we do everything for. It's just such a creepy conceit that people are willing to run with. So I thought that was very interesting. Gina didn't pick up on that or say anything else. Um, Which that's why I said she can't do anything wrong or right. Like, come on now. On the one hand, she's probably thinking, well, everyone told me I don't have the range I probably don't have the range of even for a racial conversation. So I'm not going to do this. Whereas um, other people are like ragging on her for why. Of course, she didn't say anything. Someone was like, Gina Rodriguez has the depth of a spatula. And we can't have it both ways. We can't be like, you don't, you don't need to say anything else about race yet. Go get educated. And then be like, why didn't you turn this into a very, very very intelligent roundtable discussion on analyze this, this lifetime show, you know, he was just saying like, y'all are crazy, get off my nuts. And it's weird that you can watch, you know, you can have a protagonist who's a white dude that's cute, who's a serial killer, which we do have an obsession with in America and like making these movies about them and, and, and even, you know, biopics about the real ones. It's it wouldn't fly if it was another race. And so it's just like, why? The fact that the show could even be successful and have a protagonist, because when I say protagonist, he's narrating it, you know, that is is like this. It says a lot. And so he called that out and I appreciate it. All right, guys, thank you for sticking around for another episode of Cake and Kombucha. I hope you're having a wonderful start to the new year. I'm so excited to bring you more content and a couple things in the works will be up and running soon. So thank you for your support. I hope you had fun. Reminder, you always can email me at cakeandkombucha dot... No. At cakeandkombucha at gmail.com with any comments you have, suggestions, requests. I would love that. So I hope I hear more from you and I will see you next week where we're going to be going to our regular time Thursday. Cake and Kombucha is produced and hosted by actress, writer, and singer Kelechi Azia. It features music by the talented Melanie J.B. Charles. If you like what you hear, check out MelanieJBCharles.com. Without a deal, she, she